We're James and Karen Webb and we are your mission partners working in Spain doing church planting with the European Christian Mission. Uh, we're delighted to be doing your Bible reading today uh, in English and Spanish and it's from Luke chapter 22 verses 1 to 6. So if you've got your Bibles there, it's chap- Luke chapter 22 verses 1 to 6. Se aproximaba la fiesta de los panes sin levadura llamada la Pascua. Los jefes de los sacerdotes y los maestros de la ley buscaban algún modo de acabar con Jesús, porque temían al pueblo. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, <coughs> for they were afraid of the people. Entonces entró Satanás en Judas, uno de los doce, al que llamaban Iscariote. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Este fue a los jefes de los sacerdotes y a los capitanes del templo para tratar con ellos cómo les entregaría a Jesús. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Ellos se alegraron y acordaron darle dinero. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Él aceptó y comenzó a buscar una oportunidad para entregarles a Jesús cuando no hubiera gente. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Why don't we pray together? <coughs> Father God, thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you. We know it is profitable for our instruction. We know it is ultimately profitable for our salvation. As we come to this passage this evening, please, Lord, help us to understand and apply it to our lives. Help us to have courage to hear what you would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sometimes as a preacher you feel as if you're scratching around to find an illustration. Something that you know will um, connect with what you might want to say and connect with the world around us to add context. At other times you just need to switch on the television. Uh, I think we we see straight away in our television right now um, scheming, plottering, plotting, treachery. Uh, people trying to get rid of uh, a popular well, a leader. Betrayal by those closest who appeared to be standing with them. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a political person. Neither am I saying that our current prime minister is a popular messiah-like figure. But one really, at this point in time, doesn't go, need to go any further than switching on the television or reading a newspaper to understand something about scheming and, and betrayal by establishment figures who fear losing their grip on the levers of power and the kind of panic that we see them enacting that leads to drastic action. And we start to get a sense of what we see in this short passage from Luke 22 this evening. In fact, the first thing I think we see in our passage this evening is is very clearly opposition from the religious establishment Read with me from verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus 
for they were afraid of the people. Luke gives us some context to what is about to happen. The Passover, as we know, is one of the pinnacles, is one of the the great set pieces of the Jewish calendar. When Israel comes to Jerusalem to commemorate and celebrate God rescuing Israel from captivity, from slavery in Egypt. Tens of thousands of people, maybe even a hundred thousand people would have descended on the city. It was noisy, it was crowded, it was busy, emotions would have been running high. As they celebrated God rescuing Israel from the Egyptians, they now find themselves, didn't they, um, subjugated by another nation. They find themselves subjugated, captive by the nation of Rome. And, and what about this, this Jesus of Nazareth, who had been healing people and performing miracles? What was it that that John who does the baptizing said about him? This was all going on in their mind. Verse 2. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Now this, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. As we make our way through Luke's account of the life of Jesus... From chapter 5 onwards, we read of Jesus coming up against the scrutiny of the scribes and the Pharisees, healing the paralytic, eating at Levi's house, fasting, healing on the Sabbath. Chapter 11 onwards, Jesus confronts them, the, 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 the teachers, and warns the people about them, publicly humiliates them. In chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus cleanses the temple and shames the temple leaders. Luke 19, 45 onwards, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. They detested Jesus. But not only that, but they were afraid of him. They were afraid of the people who were listening to him. Remember the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel. You will have read maybe a few weeks ago. When Jesus rode into the city... And on into the, the court, and the people spread their, their cloaks on the ground. What, the, what, what we read, 1937 onwards, when he came near the place, the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, and the, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they, they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's what the people were calling out. The chief priests, the scribes, they were afraid that their number was up. The structures and the traditions that they had built up, the religious practices that they had added to what had been passed down to them, the things that validated them, that gave them their position, that gave them their authority, could well be swept away by this popular carpenter's son from Nazareth Nazareth of all places 
The irony is that the, the, the very best people, the people who were very best qualified to recognize who Jesus actually was, were blinded by the things that they held most dear in their lives. Ritual, power, and authority. We asked ourselves this morning, didn't we, in, in, in Genesis 22, what things were unnegotiable, what things would they put before the Lord? I'm guessing these things. Luke 22, verse 2, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And actually, in a sense, things haven't changed. It has been like that ever since. We, I, I, I've worked in amongst Central Asians and, and Central Asia for 13 years. I remember once being in an international church in Dushanbe in Tajikistan. Uh, it was an international church. We were allowed to be there. But the government decided to intimidate us. We were in the middle of a, a worship service. It was permitted, legally constituted. And some, some photographers came in, government photographers came in, stood at the front and took all of our photographs. Could you imagine that happening, something, the government coming in and doing something like that here? They wouldn't do that. Just to intimidate us. And you might wonder what sort of country Central Asia is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a Muslim country on the face of things. But actually, it's, it's a, it's a, it is a Muslim country, but run by neo-communists. They, they, it was the same people running that country who ran it under the USSR. They didn't want Christians to be doing what they did. They particularly didn't like local people becoming Christians. Why was that? It wasn't through any allegiance to Islam. It was because of their fear of losing power, their, their, their fear of losing authority, their fear of people turning to the Lord Jesus and actually changing the country. The fear of the gospel was the, the, the fear of the transformation in people's lives. And what did they fear most? Above all, losing the grip that they held on the power and authority, the fear that they drove into people's lives. People have always wanted to hold on to power and authority. Nothing has really changed. And actually, is any surprise that the gospel of Jesus Christ and his followers still face opposition, even from within the religious authorities in our own country. We're grateful for those leaders in our, in our denomination who are fearless for the sake of the gospel, but we fear there are those who are in it for other motives. There will always be people who want position and power and authority, who fear the Lord Jesus, who fear the gospel. And so if we first see that the religious, the, the, the opposition from the religious establishment, the next thing we see is the painful fall of those who identify with Jesus. And we come to it, what to my mind is some of the most chilling words in the Bible. I don't know if you felt that way when you heard the passage being read to us. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Then Judas, so then Satan entered Judas. Given all that's going on in the world right now, I don't know if you've stayed with the, the, the news broadcasts long enough to get to the end of a newspaper, to the lighter news, or perhaps to the end of a, a news broadcast 
to what used to be called the and finally slot the news at 10. Do you remember that? When there was some, some light-hearted story? Well, it's that time of the year. It's that time of the year when the Office for National Statistics published the top names given to boys and girls over the last year. And it would appear that Bible names, well, one Bible name has taken something of the top spot. Have you seen what it is? Noah. Noah has beaten Oliver into second place. Now, I look with interest every year to see whether John will ever make it back up to the top of the the list again. And I can tell you that, well, from what I can see, John's and Peter's and James and Andrew's, we tend to be men of a certain age nowadays. Um, Not in the whole, but, uh, but there's one name that I have yet to see ever appear on a list like that. Judas. It's not the name you hear ringing out from the mother at the end of the day across the school playground. You know, Oliver, George, Judas, you you, you never hear that. If anything, when you hear the name being called out, it's full of vitriol, full of accusation. Judas. Judas. It's it's that sort of way you hear that name. Not only is is it a name, but actually it's perhaps become a noun in in its own right that betrays the most despicable betrayal of all time. Verse 4, And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And I suspect what troubles us most in the words, then Satan entered Jesus, is the question that perhaps flashes across our minds in an instant. Could that happen to me? Could I, might I betray the Lord Jesus in some catastrophic way? Equally troubling perhaps is the the difficult question of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that we see in Matthew 12 that the Lord Jesus said would not be forgiven. These are difficult questions to answer. Could that happen to me? Perhaps I can suggest this to us as we start to ask ourselves that sort of question. Having a tender heart to the question, could this happen to me? Having a concern, having an awareness of our, my own personal sinfulness, an awareness and a desire to seek forgiveness, that's generally a healthy place to be, isn't it? A sign that our conscience is not calloused, is not desensitized by sin. If perhaps one is completely consumed by the question, could this happen to me, and you find yourself racked with guilt, then perhaps it would be good to get support from Christian brothers and sisters to remind you of grace and the Lord's complete forgiveness of sin. That's not what the Lord wants of us. If, however, one is not in the least concerned about it, think that that could never happen to me. That's not something I have to worry about. My personal sinfulness, that's not really a big deal then perhaps red lights should be, fla- should be flashing, klaxons should be sounding. So let's take a step back for a second and ask ourselves. We'll come back to that, and that, that thought in a minute. Let's take a step back and ask ourselves before we come to that. What do we actually know about Judas? 
to help us to understand how he got to that, how would we ever get to that situation. We know that Judas behaved outwardly like, like, outwardly like the other disciples of Jesus, that Jesus called to him. He didn't really appear any different. In John 13, when Jesus tells the disciples that one of them will betray him, they all look to each other for a, at a loss to say, which one of us will it be? They, they, they don't perceive that Judas is the one, so it wasn't obvious that he wasn't the most likely candidate. But yet Jesus did know. Back in John 6, we read, Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which one of them did not believe who would betray him. We know that Judas looked after the money bag and that we know that he was dishonest. We remember how he complained about Mary pouring the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet in John 12. John 12:6 said he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to keep to himself what was put into it. We know that of Jesus' disciples, they weren't perfect. They were jockeying for positions of preference. Some had doubts. But Judas, we see consistently, was singled out for his persistent sinful attitude to money. And in the end, we read that actually money was the thing that tempted him to betray the Lord Jesus. So, so when we read that Satan entered Judas, we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves if Judas lived a life that invited that. Despite saying all the right things, despite doing all the right things, I want, and I wonder how many demons he cast out with the other disciples on those, those short-term mission trips when the Lord sent them out. Despite all of this, he secretly lived a life that harbored persistent sin. Sin that calloused his conscience and desensitized sin to himself. Even in the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. And all the time, and, at the, and I guess at the time of his choosing, Satan moves in and takes over Judas and leads him to the most infamous betrayal of all time. Now, I, I'm confident that none of you will know the person I'm about to, to talk about. But some years ago, a friend, not a British friend, let's call him Andy, he was a missionary serving in a challenging country. His was the prayer letters that everyone waited eagerly to read. His was the prayer letters that got published in the, organ, the Mission Society's magazine. His was the tales, the, tales, the tales of daring do on the mission field that everybody wanted to read. He was the one doing the real, the real pioneering work in that missionary society. When the organization came together every couple of years, he was the one, the international put, leader put his arm around. And you could just see, he sensed, this was the son that he never had himself. If, if there could be such a thing, he was the poster boy of that missionary society. And so can you imagine the shock waves when Andy's wife got in touch with the leadership of the missionary society to say, that she had discovered that he was living a double life. What kind of double life? He'd married a local woman as well as being married to her. He'd had a child by her. He had converted to Islam 
Can you imagine the disbelief, the pain, the shock? How, how could he betray his wife and his children, his friends, his colleagues? How could he betray the Lord Jesus? How could this happen? You can imagine in the shock, his colleagues, me included, all asked ourselves, if this could happen to Andy, could this happen to me? This, this wasn't just Judas in Luke 22. This was in front of us. How could this happen? And I guess this, this begs us to ask the question of Judas and Andy and perhaps other high-profile Christians we've known over the decades who've done shocking things and turned completely away from the Lord Jesus. We might ask, were they actually saved? Were they genuine followers of the Lord Jesus? How could nobody see this coming? Now, I don't propose this evening to to enter that age-old rabbit hole of asking the question, can people lose their salvation? Um, The Arminian point of view, saying that people can lose their salvation as Christians, or begin to explain the Calvinistic viewpoint that, that would suggest you're only a real Christian if you make it to the end, or the fact you demonstrate that you're a Christian by making it to, to the end, and, and, and only those with the real, only those with who've kind of, the, those who fall away in the meantime have only given away an appearance of being Christians. Because I think the more important question we should ask ourselves the pastoral question that maybe you're asking yourself and we need to continue to ask ourselves is how can I be sure? How can I be sure that I will last the course whether you're an Arminian or Calvinist or whatever you happen to be or something in the middle of all of that? I can tell you this is what members of that mission society worked through in tears when they next came together mourning what they had seen in this brother Helpfully, the writer Wayne Grudem suggests a very simple test that Christians from all backgrounds, Arminian, Calvinistic, whatever you want to say, might agree on. And the test is this. Do you appear to be a Christian now? To yourself, to others, do you appear to be a Christian now? Because the past doesn't matter and we can't predict the future If you take an honest look at yourself, do you appear to be a Christian now? And I guess the question you might want to ask yourself is, how can I assure myself that I am a genuine Christian? What might it look like to be a Christian that I can say to myself, yes, that is where I am right now. I am secure in the Lord Jesus. Three questions, perhaps. This isn't an exhaustive list. But helpful questions perhaps to ask ourselves once in a while. Number one, do I have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Am I trusting that my salvation depends entirely on faith in Christ's death on the cross? And to acknowledge that there's nothing I can do, nothing I can bring to that. It is entirely Christ who saves me. Number two, is, is there evidence of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in my heart? Not that I perfectly reflect them, perhaps, but would the fruits of the Spirit that we read in Galatians, would they generally be displayed in my life? 
Is my life demonstrating Christian fruitfulness as I play my part in the life serving in the church family? Number three, do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? The Apostle Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And a few verses on. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. That's what the Apostle Peter says. You will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's how you can be sure that you're going on with the Lord. That we will make it to the end. These things give comfort to the Christian who strives to guard their heart. To turn their lives away from, to turn their backs on persistent sin and not give an opening to the evil one. The counsel of those who do not appear to be to themselves or others Christian, what would I say? You must repent of your sins. You, you, you must trust in Christ for your salvation. And if that's you tonight, talk to someone. Don't leave that unsaid. We must guard our hearts, assure ourselves day by day, not be consumed with guilt and wrath, but assume, but trust in the Lord Jesus. Ask myself, am I going on with the Lord? Can I see growth? Do I trust only in him? Look, this has been challenging verses to work from. This is a passage that very few people ever preach on. But before we, before we finish, let's lift our eyes from the scheming of the chief priests, the scheming of the scribes, from the scheming of the devil, and just remind ourselves, spoilers, let's go on to a bit into the end of Luke, and remind ourselves that the chief priests and the scribes and the devil may have achieved their short-term objectives, but ultimately they lost, didn't they? The Lord Jesus was victorious. The devil was defeated. Without them realizing it, everything that they did was actually in fulfillment of God's plan for our salvation revealed through the Bible. The Lord Jesus willingly went through, went along with it in faith and obedience. He went along with it and doing so defeated the devil. And Jesus was given the highest honor by God. He was seated in the highest place. He, he, he sent the Holy Spirit to be our guide, to point us to Jesus, to help us live lives that are worthy of the Lord Jesus. So let us trust in the Lord. Let us guard our hearts and let us not lose hope. Amen. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you, first of all, wanting to praise and acknowledge the Lord Jesus. 
victorious over sin and the devil. The one who was who appeared from the very beginning of time through the scriptures, who came to fulfill the promises to Abraham and others, who came to save us from our sins. Thank you that we can turn away from that sins, call out to the Lord Jesus in faith, call him Lord, and you in a moment will make us yours. Lord, these were challenging words for us to read this evening. And we pray that you would continue to teach us what it means to guard our hearts. Help us to look into our lives. To recognize never to be comfortable with sinfulness. Help us as the church family to in love to hold each other to account for our conduct, our behavior. Lord, help us even when we fool ourselves and others to recognize our place before you. Thank you that you willingly forgive us. You restore us. You call us back to you. We thank you for this promise of an eternity spent with you that is secure. And we trust and pray that we will be with you. So Lord, help us as we work through these things this evening and this week to have a right opinion of ourselves and to know what it means to stand righteous before you because you give that righteousness to those who call out to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.